Hello and welcome to the Grid Podcast, your podcast about our electricity networks and their role at the heart of our transition to net zero. Uh, I'm in the hot seat today. It's Brian Murhead hosting with regular co-host David. Hello. And today we are talking about a topic we get asked about a lot, and that is behind the meter uh, connections for generation, storage, wind. Um, and before I go any further, just what is behind the meter? Lots of people have lots of different lingo. So it it could be uh, a large factory looking to install some solar. It could be an EV charging hub combining with battery or solar or a combination of both. Uh, some people know it as zero export or limited export connections. Um, so the, the, there's all, some people know it as private wire. That's yeah. another term that gets thrown about, a private wire uh, connection for a solar farm. So it's really just combining a, a load or a demand factory EV hub, um, anything at all, uh, and wiring in, uh, directly wiring in some generation, usually solar and battery, uh, wind turbines occasionally, yeah, yeah, uh, geographically doesn't suit as much. And this is something we get asked about a lot, uh, especially now with the the transmission capacity crunch now uh, that we've mentioned in a previous podcast episode. If you're looking to just do a greenfield solar site export into the grid, Anywhere in, in GB now, you're looking at 2030 sort of and beyond connection dates. So lots of people have been turning attention to, well, well actually, could I develop a solar farm beside a large factory or, um, you know, even just energy pricing going up as well. Lots of industrial users are looking at this as well. And that's kind of the essence of the engineering, isn't it? The load beside the demand means you don't need as much distribution or transmission network in between. So that's... It's kind of the ideal scenario in some ways. Exactly, exactly. So it's all about, uh, you know, industry kind of decarbonizing, becoming more self-sufficient as well. Um, and then even a lot of people are approaching us about it uh, on the basis of they, they can't get capacity. Maybe it's for an EV charging hub or or a large industrial connection and they're asking, well, is there anything we can do with batteries or solar or, or anything to alleviate those grid issues even in, in the short term? So it's something that's quite a hot topic in the industry at the minute. Uh, but it is also something there's a lot of misconceptions about and it, it often tri- trips people up. You know, they think, well, sure, I'm just generating and using the power on site. Why does, why does the grid, it's none of the why grid. Does it matter? Yeah, yeah, it's none of the grid's business. It's none of the DNO's business. So a few things maybe that we'll cover today then. Um, your legal obligations, you know, to actually have permission to have this behind the meter scenario. Um, and then we'll get into why, why actually there are those obligations and, and the technical reasons behind that just at a high level, um, even though you're not exporting. Um, there'll be some differences, you know, between, between what behind the meter looks like um, than, say, an export connection or indeed even your import connection and who you need to keep, you know, updated and what you need to consider. And then really, you know, we need to be, we'll, we'll provide a sort of summary of here's all the sort of checklist stuff that you need to do to make sure that, yeah, we've done that, we've done that. Yeah, we're, we're fully compliant. We know what we're doing. And, you know, that you get the most out of your behind the meter connection because ultimately that's what the customer wants, isn't it? Is that they want to be able to, you know, have a, an economic and a commercial um, case back that enables them to save some money yeah. and, and you know, and reduce their, their carbon yeah, footprint. Exactly. And it's as much about being aware of a lot of these risk items before you go too far down a road. I think, you know, we've seen lots of these projects. It always sounds like a great idea in the face of it. You know, that there's maybe a a large solar development in a local area or or something else but you know there's lots of different risks as we'll get into lots yeah. of different potential impacts here uh, so as long as you're aware of them you can manage them you can mitigate them and you're much more likely to have a successful project it's probably worth saying too that ultimately um 
greenfield sites probably easier to do because you can consider all these things as you're actually designing you know your connection designing your your switch gear your network or whatever beyond the meter um but there's a lot of people looking to do them retrospectively rightly so um but that that adds a wee bit more complexity and probably just a, a little bit more stuff to consider so we'll we'll talk about those couple of things we're really concentrating on the larger uh, non-domestic type market but if you are a domestic user um or a small sort of industrial commercial local um sme certainly the main principles will still pretty much apply across you know what we've said today so you can take those as a, a first cut and you still yes even at that 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 level you still need to have some form of interaction with the dno yeah yeah the legal obligations are similar the technical reasons are all similar there's just some slight different like fast track processes and stuff for domestic and you know sort of smaller uh scale industry as well okay well that's us teed up i suppose we'll yep. we'll get into it um then so legal obligations brian where do they sort of ultimately stem from or what's the yeah, so anybody, the first thing they need to know if you're looking to put any behind the meter generation, this applies from, you know, sticking solar on your roof and anything up to a uh, large scale solar farms battery plant. Um, it's ESQCR legislation, so the electricity supply, quality and continuity regulations. Easy uh, for you to if, say. If I haven't got that right in the podcast, no. I'm going to get torn to, <laughs> torn to shred, so I hope I have. Um, uh, basically, there's a clause in there that if you are operating generation in parallel with the grid, so that this key phrase in parallel, uh, and before going any further, what does that mean? It means that you're electrically connected to the grid while your generator is running. Um, so that is different to, um, like if, if you do live out in the countryside and you've got a backup generator, likelihood is you'll have a changeover switch at your meter board. So you switch it over and you're totally electrically disconnected from the grid and then you start up your, your diesel and generator. They normally call that island mode, don't they? Yeah. You're a wee island on your own. You're not connected to anybody else. You're just this one generator feeding this small bit or small island. Yeah. So so that that is not in parallel with the grid. That If you're on a changeover switch, you're not in parallel with the grid. This does not apply then. But it is very, very rare. You know, that, you know, that happens backup generation at a domestic level. When we're talking about plugging in solar farms and large battery plants or, you know, even if it's a megawatt of solar on the, on the roof of a large industrial factory or something, you're, you're not going to do, you're not going to be able to turn the whole factory off and, and just yeah. run it on the solar. Yeah, but even back in the day, um, the, you know, the network operators and, and they still do this, you know, if they're providing generation, say in a fault scenario or, or actually more likely for planned maintenance, they want to keep their customers on, they'll parallel their generator on with the grid first yeah. and then they'll disconnect it. So, uh, you know, that that's a common principle right across. Yeah. So the word parallel is you're operating and you're still connected to the grid. So you could be importing a little bit of power from the grid and using a lot of power from, say, your solar panels or your battery, but everything's electrically connected. So you, you have to obtain permission from the, the DNO for that. And I, I think that the threshold 16 amps per phase. It roughly works out about four kilowatts per phase. Uh, below that, you know, is your domestic scale. There's fast track processes, but but in, anything above the 16 amps, then there um, there needs to be express permission from the DNO. Now that's set out in legislation, and I suppose it's really there because of the technical reasons behind it that we will get into. And it, it is that it's that question we keep getting asked. You know, what, why is it any of the grid's business? Like, um, say say you're on a zero export connection where you're not exporting anything, you're just using the power on site. Like, what? Why does the DNO need to know? Yeah. 
And that, that brings us really to the next topic is fault level. So. Yeah. I mean, the main thing in that ESQCR is the safety element, isn't it? That's a real critical piece of this. I, and, and that's why it is there. It's there for safety reasons. And what, when we do, when we explain fault level and the fault level impact you might have, that, that hopefully will make it clearer why, why there is a reason there. Yep. So I suppose just to get into it, we're, we're probably not have enough time to explain fault level from first sure. principles. But uh, in, in a nutshell, you're connected, say you're connected to the grid and you've got an export limitation device that is uh, set to zero. So you're not exporting to the grid, you're just using the power on site. Well, what impact are you having on the grid? If there is a fault on, on the grid network, your generator will still contribute fault current to that fault and to the DNO's network. And um, like fault, fault current could be three, four times the, the power rating of your generator. So if, if you've got, say, a, a, you know, a one megawatt uh, generator on site, it could contribute two, three, four times its rating to, into, into, the the D, into the DNO's network, yeah. into the fault. And the DNO has to, you know, they manage fault level on their network. So they've got all their circuit breakers, all their kit that, that protects the network. When there is a fault, it isolates the, the, the dangerous bit of network and makes everything safe. Those switches are only rated to a certain fault level. So there's only a certain amount of fault level they can break before you know you, you get catastrophic failure i think is the, yeah, the, yeah. the pc term for it so by connecting your behind the meter generation you are going to be increasing fault levels on the dno's network so it is always like number one thing i recommend to anybody if you're going to go for any sort of scalable behind the meter generation is fault level checks uh, upstream in the dno network yeah. and potentially downstream depending on on and a lot of the DNOs have those on like sort of heat maps now nearly, don't they? Some of them have certainly. Yeah, you can you can check quite a bit of that. Yep. Um, there's quite a bit of data out there. So have a quick fault level check. That is probably the main issue that might trip you up. And because the networks are now so saturated, you know, any generation contributes fault level. The networks are so saturated with distribution gener just distributed generation now. Uh, fault level um, it is becoming a bit of an issue. You, yep. you are seeing fault level issues and it, it typically means this the DNO has to replace a full substation, which yeah. takes years to do. And historically, it's, it is probably the fault level is probably on the older switch gear. The newer stuff is ge generally, as a general statement, will have a higher fault level range. Yeah. And uh, I suppose one thing I have been asked quite a lot, well, you know, is there no solution to this? Um, well, you potentially can do a little bit of fault level mitigation at your site, but at the end of the day, there's no way to totally mitigate it if you've got no fault contribution from your generator then you can't safely operate that generator yourself because you can't design your own protection yep. you know so so fault fault currents a necessary evil in a way you need a fault current to detect a fault to yep. to be able to run a safe electrical system but at the same time once it gets too high on that system it causes issues and you need to upgrade your equipment yep. and as you say all generators have some level of fault level contribution um sort of on the scale of things um you know, high, higher level fault levels to lower level fault levels. Um, solar, you know, compared to like a traditional generator. Yeah, well, solar is going to be at the lower end of that in, in terms of any inverter connected generation. Obviously, your, your sort of spinning machines yep. are going to have, have much higher fault levels. But um, I, I think, yeah, without going into the full nuts and bolts of fault level, just kind of high level explanation, that, that that is one of the key impacts you're going to have. It's one of the key things to check out. And if a, if the local network is already maxed out for fault level, there's a good chance you might have to wait for a full you know substation upgrade, which you know can can take years. The other thing from a safety point of view, though, this is easy dealt with. Um, from you know from a protection perspective, is that uh, 
you have to have a loss of means protection as well. So, you know, if you kind of think of if uh, if a circuit trips and, and there's generation downstream and it's um, actually then island from the rest of the network, what we what uh, the network operators can't have is generation feeding back onto that network and making it live because they're, you know, thinking about sending people to work, all the rest of it. So the loss of means then comes into a requirement as well, but I'd say much easier. Yeah, yeah. Well, potentially, I suppose it depends on the size of your scheme. If <clears throat> if you're into some very large generation, say you're say you're putting basically a greenfield solar site into you know private wiring into a huge factory, um, a lot of the dinos would have maybe like intertripping loss of mains requirements and things like that. So you, yeah, okay, fair enough. You can yeah. be into quite you know maybe complex co- communication schemes. Um, so well, I suppose that's really the next one after fault level is you know there could be a need for protection upgrades. There could be a need for compliance upgrades. So your say say you've got an existing factory. It's got a ten megawatt load. You're maybe sticking a five megawatt solar farm in next door. You're going to private wire it in. You're going your whole connection is going to need to be G ninety nine compliant. Um, you're going to need to be G one hundred compliant. So we should I'll touch on G one hundred in a bit more detail. G100, everybody will be familiar with G99, sort of generation compliance standards. G100 is the ENA standard that governs export limitation schemes. So if you're doing any sort of export limitation, whether it's partial export or fully zero export, your site needs to be G100 compliant. And that that's basically an ENA policy setting out the how your export limitation scheme needs to work, different thresholds and everything else. Uh, and so... And you might need some of that loss of means protection in there. Um, so that this can can get a little bit complicated, particularly if you're going into retrospective sites, yep. because you you might have some old switch gear in there that's been sitting there since the 60s. You maybe don't have VT signals for the likes of MB, MVD protection, or you, you might need new CTs. You might need new circuit breaker bays in your private gear to, to terminate your cable into. All of a sudden, you can be looking at a full you know, private substation rebuild and redesign. Yep. Uh, which you might not have factored in at the outset. You know, you might have said, oh, I can build a solar farm, five megawatt solar farm, it's going to cost me X. Stick it in here. Stick it in, it's it's all going to be grand. And then all of a sudden you have to overhaul a full substation and it's costing you the same as, you know, the farm in the first place the, or whatever. The overall budget's yeah. now doubled. Um, so we go back to the start, you know, this is all about identifying all those risks up front so that you can consider this at the conceptual stage when you're looking at budgets. Yep. And, and and be aware of it to be able to factor it in before you go too far down a road. And there has been a revision to G100, hasn't there, recently, which does make it a little bit more complex than it was previously? Yeah, so the uh, kind of the initial version of G100 then, effectively what it was is um, a two-step process. So you should have a controller on the site. That So say, say it's a zero export site, so you've got 5 megawatt generation, 10 megawatt factory. But if, if the factory load drops to three megawatts while the solar's exporting to five you need a controller then that ramps the solar, solar down. down either ramps the solar down or ramps demand up, up. Yep. Uh, to make sure that the power isn't being exported to the grid and there was a, t- a time band allowance to do that so that the controller had a five or ten seconds to to get that to happen so th- there was there's there's a short-term exposure actually you know your controller can't act instantly so this is actually another problem you have a potential short-term thermal overload or potential voltage issue to the DNO. So your, your export limiting device isn't able to just, may not be able to stop all power export. You know, there may be power spilled to the grid over a few seconds or in, in the case of the updated G100, that, that can run into minutes. 
So that is another consideration the DNO needs to look into. They need to look into short-term overload ratings because you could be, even though it's zero export, you could in reality be spilling to the grid uh, still. So so that's one element. And then like the, the second stage of the original G100 was you know basically a trip then. If the control system couldn't keep the system within limits within a off certain you time frame, you, you trip off the generation or trip off the whole site. Um, which is is actually if you're ever setting up one of these schemes, you really want to design that well. I've seen r- some really bad design schemes where it trips the whole site off. Yep. You you don't want to be tripping like a whole hospital or or something off. You no you, for sure. You just you want to make sure you're tripping signals and logic set up right that you're you're yep. only tripping the generation. Um. Yeah, I've I've seen some really really bad examples of that. Um. So so yeah, that's ENAG one hundred. It's got a lot more complex now. They've taken in the consideration a lot more different scenarios you know that you have different different types of plant can react differently. And how they op- operate and what their yeah reaction what, time is and uh, that kind of stuff you know if you if you think large maybe synchronous machines can't really operate within you know seconds um so that they've allowed they've more alliances in there for that and it's all down to bespoke network studies you know what is the local network what's the risk of overload um so even and generally at, in the overload question you know with the fault level issue as well but an overload question if you're your generation is less than your demand you should probably be all right in terms of the network that's out there again again it comes back like it does get all very bespoke because well you think you've got a very bespoke local network so that's going to be different for every site and what the local ratings are there and then every site's bespoke you know like not everything's a solid you know like what 10 megawatt factory just sits at 10 megawatts and ticks over they're going to have variable load profiles it's probably very potentially variable on a daily basis yep. as well yeah whereas well i suppose solar is a fairly predictable pattern um so you can look at that quite easily uh but even say battery storage you know you could be using it off and on at any time of day or night so it's you kind of need to sit down look at what the factory or the the use case profile of of whatever it is if it's an ev charging hub well ev charging yeah. hubs gonna be a very variable application yeah. as an example and i think that very much depends then you know, we're nearly into a whole other topic here, but like, are you actually load managing your site? So like if, if you just have a, if you have a connection that's 10 megawatt designed and you have a five megawatt generic generation, there's going to be a bit of export generally should be. But then if you're actually on that sort of load managed site, then that becomes much, you know, that's a whole other, <laughs> whole yeah. other thing where you're actually saying my generation's providing me something that yeah. I need. Um, but, um, but yeah, so just, just to maybe come back high level on the technical issues. So we, we've got, you know, fault level, that, that's an issue you just can't really avoid. You've got the fact that even with your export limiting device and control system, there's still a risk that you could be, uh, you know, thermally overloading the DNO's network either on, on a short term basis and potentially uh, causing voltage fluctuation on their network yep. as well. Yep. Um, so that, that all needs to be looked at in the DNO's network and it needs to be looked at specific to your application and what you're doing as well. Um, and then obviously if, if you're on a what we would call a limited export scheme, so if you've got 10 megawatts of generation but you want to be able to spill 2 megawatts to the grid, um, well that's going that 2 megawatts is, is then also going to be treated the same way any you know brand new export site is, which means you're joining the bottom of the queue and you're probably going to have to wait to 20, 30 odd. So that, that that's why the, the zero export limited to zero is a very popular thing um, at the minute that people are talking about is to try and avoid some of those transmission queuing issues. Yeah. As well as technical issues and there, there's like legal issues too, isn't there? So like in terms of generally in these scenarios, 
everyone's unique as i suppose but generally you'll end up with like a generator and a load customer and they're trying to come together to make some arrangement you know whether that be just local on their site or potentially these private wires that's a further down the road or whatever but in that scenario then you still have only one connection to the grid so there's lots of things to consider just in terms of who owns the grid connection um you know who signs the connection agreement and the obligations that come with that legally um you could be the demand person but you're if you're signing the connection agreement you're responsible for the generation there's lots of tricky bits in around there that you know sometimes can cause actually nearly more hassle than the technical yeah well i would say as an engineer the technical's black and white and we can always solve problems yep um any of these kind of private wire schemes behind the meter whatever you want to call them um have looked at quite a few and i would say the vast majority of, of them that didn't go ahead didn't go ahead more to do with those types of um liability or legal reasons or whatever yep. you want to call it so exactly what you said if you know who owns the connection agreement the point of connection with the grid because once you have generation on there there's g99 compliance obligations um things like well how are you going to set up intertripping schemes and, and and who's paying for any upgrades to the private side substation as well yeah um you know is there risk that there could be interruption to the factory supply um if the generator doesn't behave in the way it's supposed to behave if it doesn't live up to its uh compliance liabilities you know like I kind of touched on before, I've seen some badly designed sort of G100 schemes and things where um, you're tripping incoming breakers to to quite Higher. critical demand mm, yep. that, that you really shouldn't be. So um, th- there's definitely some things to think about. And there. there's an even more sort of terminal one ultimately where if, um, say for example, a factory closed for whatever reason, yeah. uh, you know, who owns that connection agreement? If you're the generator, do you actually have something? Well, one, have you something to feed at all if it's zero export? Two, can you get access to the, say you have a two megawatt limit, you know, whatever, you know, where's the connection agreement with that and, and how does that all work? So there is a few yeah, tricky if, legal issues there. Yeah, if you're funding a solar farm on a 20-year kind of uh, basis, um, but, you know, most businesses maybe work on what, like, you know, five years ahead. Yep. Um, what do you do if, if there is no factory there in five or 10 or 15 years to feed? Um, do you end up with a quite expensive stranded asset as well? So th- those are the sorts of things that um, I suppose they're not not directly, re- you know, to us as grid engineers. They're probably more the discussions we've been involved in. Yep. Um, but they're probably, to be fair, one of the more challenging bits we, we've probably seen. Um, so, yeah, I think probably just to summarize then, um you know to kind of pull it all together so uh you know the the main question we get asked uh you know it's behind the meter i'm going to use all electricity why does the grid need to know well for for two reasons one's legal you've got a legal obligation under esqcr to to obtain permission from the dno if you're operating in parallel even if you're not exporting and that legal reason is there because of the technical reasons which is point number two uh which obviously fault level is is probably one of the, the most prevalent ones uh, and then you've got some of those sh- short-term thermal overloads or voltage disruptions that you might cause to the grid, uh, depending on the design of your control system. And then after that, um, it's all more on the customer side, really, then. And, you yep. know, what, what does your substation look like? You might have updated protection requirements um, that might be expensive. You know, you might find if you need extra VTs, CTs or whatever, and you go to your, your old switchboard from the 60s, you're into a whole new substation building your own side, and it makes the project unviable. 
you've got your kind of legal agreements as well. If, if you're coming, uh, collaborating, say you're a demand customer with say a solar developer. Yep. How does that all work in terms of great compliance and connection agreement ownership? Uh, you know, what does it look like in terms of protecting uh, both parties liabilities into the long term as well? Um, and I think the only other one, yeah, we had one other issue we did want to say, I've seen this trip up a few projects is, um, if say you're building a solar farm, it's a kilometer up or up the road from the factory. Uh, obviously you need to get a, your private wire between the two sites. So again, getting consents, third party consents, if it's going through third party land ownership, yeah. if it's going up a public highway as well, we, we have seen some IDNO solutions come into that space in terms of the taking private wires up up roadways. Um, so you might actually be able to get an IDNO adoption and do that under statutory undertaker rights. Nice, yeah. Um, so that that is one potential solution to that. Um, again, that's that is more of an issue that is fairly obvious. I'd say most people would be quite aware to that type of issue. Um, but yeah, I think as we summarise, that's yeah, all, that's all I, the main things. I think things. that's it. And I mean, for me, when you look at this, it all makes you know real logical sense. Just to compare, you know, in terms of generation and load beside each other this is the way it's going to go we need to maximize you know the renewable energy that we have and we need to maximize the assets that we've already built so i think as these levers all get pulled this is going to be something that's going to be a thing like it's just the way it's going to be going forward it definitely is a lot more prevalent you know we're having discussions on this a lot more uh regular basis and it is good to see you know it's not without its challenges but you know as i say most challenges there's nothing we can't overcome and we're seeing crossover between our sort of sectors, aren't we? You know, renewables, I and C. Yeah. You know, they're talking more. And Ex then we're kind of talking in between them. So Exactly. And I think you're already starting to see EV hubs come online with, with battery storage and solar. And you're really seeing those technology mixes come through. Yep. Well, thanks very much, David. Uh, Thank you. So that's it for today's episode of The Grid Podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed that one and it was useful. Uh, thanks to David for co-hosting. And we will be back again shortly with another episode. You can like or subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can also watch us on YouTube. Uh, again, as always, please do leave comments or, or throw in some queries if there's any topics you want to hear covered. Uh, we do like to respond and we do like to get the ideas in and, and see about topics for future podcasts. Thanks. Cheers.